All right, so as I said, we're in this new series called Unqualified. Last week, we kicked off the series with Gideon and, and talked about how Gideon was, was a fearful person. He was someone that dealt with fears and feeling weak. And this week, we're looking at Elijah. Now, Elijah's going to come a little bit different than how Gideon does. And, and in reality, each week as we talk about different characters, they're all going to have different bents and leanings and struggles. What we're going to see in Elijah's life, though, is that for the most part, he lived incredibly strong and incredibly faithful, and the portions of his life that we are going to be looking at that in some ways could unqualify him actually happened much later in his life, which I'm going to preach about that further on in the message. But just to kind of help you understand the context of who Elijah is and who we're talking about today, I think I need to give you a little bit of history on what is going on right now in Elijah's life and the kingdom of Israel. So if you didn't know, the Bible takes, it records the life in the Old Testament of many people that spanned over thousands of years. At this particular moment in Israel's history, the kingdom of Israel was divided. So it was divided into a northern region and a southern region. This division happened after the time of David. So many people know who David is in the Bible. He's the famous king who was able to slay Goliath and unite the kingdom and fight to increase Israel's borders and really establish this powerful kingdom of Israel in modern-day Palestine. Well, after his death, his sons, his descendants, really entered into a lot of destructive lifestyles that created these issues within the kingdom. There would be coup after coup formed for people trying to bide for power that eventually led to this division and separation of a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So when you read the book of Kings, what you're looking at is really the, the lives of 20 different kings in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom. Specifically, the life of Elijah is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. And the common trademark that you see in Scripture is either these kings of Israel or Judah would follow in the ways of their father David, would give up idols, and would follow the ways of the Lord, or they would do the reverse. They would give in to idols, they wouldn't follow in the ways of David, and they would live ungodly lives. Well, through First and Second Kings, most of every single one of the kings from both the northern and southern kingdom all led ungodly lives. In fact, there's only a handful of kings that led a life that was similar to the life of David, one that was considered righteous. And I think the number is only eight kings out of the 20 from the southern kingdom and no kings from the northern kingdom. So as you can imagine, the work of a prophet during this time was very difficult because the people just naturally 
resisted God. So this is the, this is the area, this is the, the circumstance through which we come into contact with Elijah. Specifically when King Ahab and Jezebel were ruling the kingdom of Israel and probably creating some of the worst lifestyles up until that point. So 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, let's read that together. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. So, again, what's, what's happening here? Well, what's happening is, is Elijah's been confronting King Ahab. And he ended up going to the king's courts. And you see, Elijah had already been escaping the grasp of King Ahab. And when he went to his courts, he confronted Ahab and he told him specifically this word, and I love it. He says this, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. He says that to King Ahab. King Ahab is just so upset over Elijah and decides to kind of do a match, if you will. He gathers up 450 of his prophets and puts them against Elijah. And in this amazing moment where God is shown to be greater than any other prophet out there over any other religion, Elijah is able to show the power of God. And instead of Ahab repenting in that moment, what he does is he tells Jezebel, who becomes infuriated over Elijah, who wants to now kill him. The irony of this situation is that Elijah was able in this moment to prove God's strength. He, in fact, mocked the other people and would eventually cut them down. But yet, the minute that Jezebel says that, I want to kill you, Elijah, Elijah goes running and he's so afraid of his life, afraid for his life, that he literally runs out into hiding into the wilderness. Now, I find that to be pretty interesting because he goes from being this brave, strong person to a fearful person that's afraid of what's going to happen to him. I think we can be like that too sometimes, right? Where we can feel strong and convicted and and have strength over something that we believe in. And then maybe the next day we're not as strong or we make a mistake or we fall back into an old pattern and it's like what God did in our lives is completely forgotten. Has that ever happened to you before? 
where you forget what God has done for you. Maybe you prayed a radical prayer and then God showed himself faithful in your life and then a week or a month or maybe even just a day goes by and then it's like you forgot that God showed up before in your life. And you live in complete despair, questioning and wondering what's going to happen next. This is exactly where Elijah is in his life right now. He's running and he's afraid. It says that he ends up running so much that he goes to this, this what's called a broom bush and he hides out in this broom bush. And I'm going to go ahead and show you a picture on the screen of what that looks like. So that's a picture of Israel and that is a broom bush. And it says in scripture that he hid under the broom bush. You could see the shadow that it cast, right? So he was probably hiding under one of the shadows there just feeling totally dejected in his life. See, what's happening here is Elijah is dealing with with deep depression, I think, in his life. He's running. He's afraid. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. And because of that, he's questioning life itself. Verse 4 in Scripture says that while he, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to the broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. He says this, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. The Oxford Dictionary says that depression is feeling dejected. It's feeling of inadequacy, of guilt. It's often accompanied by a lack of energy, a disturbance of appetite, and sleep. Do you think that that definition of depression is what Elijah was feeling in that moment? It seems like it. I mean, it seems like he's in such a dark place that he's literally asking the Lord to take his life. That he rather die than live another moment. Now, that's a scary thing to talk about, or that's a difficult thing to talk about at the very least, because at worst, you know, he might be suicidal, and, and, and at least, he's at least in a place where he wants no more with what's happening around him. I don't know about you, but this is a common struggle that many of us face. I know that there have been times in my life where I felt like life was crashing in on me so much that it's just like, Lord, please take me because I can't handle this. And that's exactly where Elijah was. He was in this situation right now where he felt like he could not handle a minute more of life. Maybe that's your story right now. Maybe you've been praying a prayer of, Lord, 
take me right now. I can't handle this situation. You see, I believe that what Elijah was dealing with in this moment was real depression. Now, there's a difference psychologically between chronic depression and an episode of depression. And I just want to offer a disclaimer here. I'm not trying to speak as a mental health professional. I did my undergrad in in psychology, but that's about as far as it went. I want to speak today as a pastor looking into Scripture and seeing what, what Scripture has to say about that. So I just want to offer that as a disclaimer here. But what we see in this moment, I think, is a, a person who is a prophet of God, a righteous man of God, called to do great things for the Lord, feeling totally depressed. So much so that he does not want to live anymore. Now, if he's feeling that way, chances are we've probably felt that way too, right? At least at some moment of our life. But I think that this moment of him being depressed really means something else. It means that Elijah is listening to a lie in his life that is causing him to be depressed. You see, John 10.10 talks about two different goals that the kingdom of God is trying to accomplish and the kingdom of darkness is trying to accomplish. You see, all for the kingdom of God, what God is trying to accomplish in your life is He's trying to give you a rich life, an abundant life, a good life. And on this other side, what John 10.10 tells us, it says that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Which means that any time you are feeling dejected, depressed, or feeling the negativity of life, that is the kingdom of darkness trying to work its way into your life. That is the byproduct of sin, of separation, of hurt, of pain, and of the enemy actively trying to bring you down. You see, as much as we must realize that some of the negative experiences that we go through are a byproduct of our stinking thinking or the decisions that we make, the reality is is that there's also somebody that is actively trying to fight us and bring us down. In the story of Elijah, it was Jezebel, right? Jezebel was acting in some ways on behalf of the kingdom of darkness to be able to snuff out this man of God. But you see, any time this kingdom of darkness, any time your life comes in a situation where this is the byproduct, that it, know that that is not what God has for you. God's purpose for you is life. And if you are not experiencing that life, then in some ways you need to ask yourself, What is the lie that I'm accepting in my life right now? Because you see, there's truths 
right? And then there's lies. And oftentimes what leads to these negative feelings, including depression, is because we've accepted some sort of lie in our life. And the best way that we can deal with that lie is if we do what? We speak truth to it. So here are just three lies that I think are causing depression in Elijah's life and may be something that has caused depression in your own life or at least could cause depression in your own life. The first lie is this. So I'm going to have three lies up here, and we're going to go ahead and show them one at a time. So the first lie was that he was questioning his hope. That's lie number one. Nothing to hope in. You see, that is what the enemy in Jezebel wanted Elijah to believe in. She wanted him to think that there was no hope for his future, that there was no hope for Israel itself, that nothing was going to change, and that the work of Elijah was truly pointless. See, that is one cause of why at times we may feel depressed in life is because we have lost hope. Now, I believe that that Scripture teaches us that hope and faith are closely linked together. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So you see how there the author is linking hope and faith together? You see, I believe that in order to hope for something, in some ways you're placing your faith in something, right? That a part of faith is laying your hope into whatever it is that you're trying to believe in. Elijah's hope was that Israel would change. That's what he was living out his life for. That's why he was willing to risk his own life and to to be able to show up and speak to the king because he wanted a better tomorrow for Israel and he wanted Israel to change. But when he did not see that change happening, he lost his hope. What are areas in your life that you feel like you've lost your hope in? What are some things that maybe before you believed in, but because of a crushing circumstance, it changed what you hope in? I want you to take some time to think about that. And trust me, I recognize that today's message could be pressing some buttons for you. It could cause you to to have to unearth and deal with some of the darker parts of our struggles in life, but I believe that it is so worth being able to bring that out in a healthy way if we speak truth to it. 
Because the reality is, is that it, it doesn't matter how far down we stuff these issues and these, these, these things and experiences that we go through. The reality is, is that if we don't deal with it and if we don't speak truth to it, that in some ways we will be walking our lives and living out our lives with that sort of handicap. It has a way of coming out some way or another. So what is a moment in your life that you lost hope? Was it in a relationship? Was it in a situation where maybe you felt like you were in this unhealthy job or you had these unhealthy family dynamics or you were making unhealthy choices that that just caused you to question the hope that you have in this world. I remember um, one of my first jobs was I got to be a, a, a tutor for elementary school students, and I would go after high school, directly after high school, I would head over to the elementary school, and I would tutor these kids that were in an after-school care program. And I really enjoyed the job. I got to hang out with a whole bunch of kids and, and try as best as I can to be a positive influence on their life. And I remember one day I was speaking to a teacher that was staying there late, and she was grading papers, and she was, you know, watching me um, take care of these kids and help them with their assignments. And she really appreciated what I was trying to do, and we got into a conversation about what my future was going to be because she was just curious. So I told her that at that time, I, I really believed that the Lord was going to be calling me into ministry. And immediately she said, I remember when I thought I could change the world too. <laughs> And I remember just kind of being sad in that moment. I wasn't necessarily sad because she had taken something away from me. She wasn't going to convince me otherwise what God had for me. But what I was sad about was some point in her life, her saying that, signaled to me that there was some point in her life that she too had a dream to make a difference and for whatever reason that dream became broken and she lost her hope and she gave up her faith in that dream to where now she looks at anybody younger than herself that is maybe having the same kind of optimism to, to make a difference in the world and just totally thinking negatively. And I believe this woman in this moment was believing more in a lie than what God's truth would say. Because here's the thing, we live in a world where cameras are right in our pockets and we can throw things up on social media and there's real celebrities that people know all across the world. And I think because of that, we sometimes have a skewed perspective on what it means to make a difference in this world. But the truth is, is that making a difference doesn't necessarily have to be a global phenomenon. You don't have to go viral on YouTube in order to make a difference. To make a difference means sometimes just being a good mother. To make a difference means sometimes just being a good friend. 
helping people in whatever situation they're in, praying for people, living out whatever God-given directives the Lord has given to you. If He's called you to be a teacher, if He's called you to be a counselor, if He's called you to be a nurse, whatever He's called you to do, doing it to the best of your ability has the potential to make a difference in somebody's life. There have been days where I've been able to preach to hundreds of people. And there are other days where the room is not so full. And I can't look at those moments and think to myself, I'm not making a difference. No, I'm where God wants me to be. And I'm going to believe that wherever God puts me, I can make a difference even if it's only to one person. Elijah stopped believing that he could make a difference. And because of that, he was losing his hope. And he was second-guessing his self-worth and also his meaning in life. I get it. It's a difficult thing to try to work towards something and then all of a sudden feel like that something that you've dedicated your whole life to doesn't go the way that you expect it. I don't think, I, I think there's probably no bigger example of this and harder example of this than being a parent, right? We work so hard to be able to raise our children well, and sometimes they make different choices than what you've raised them to do. And that's difficult. And that's hard, and that can that can cause us to question our own sense of meaning and purpose in life, especially if you felt like your main role was being able to raise up your kids. These moments are hard. So what areas of your life have you called your self-worth, your meaning into question? And have you labored at something that has never panned out? How did you deal with that afterwards? So the lie is, is that there is nothing to hope in. But the truth is, is that God is our hope. Amen? God is our hope. Hebrews 10.23, so just before this famous verse of, of what faith is, it says, let us hold unswaveringly to hope to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. What does that mean? That means that God is going to be faithful to all of the promises in Scripture. So when the Lord says that he loves you, that means he loves you. And he will never violate that promise. When the Lord says that I will be with you, then what does that mean? He will be with you, and He will never violate that promise. The next lie that I think could lead to depression is that you are alone. You are alone. One of the wonderful tragedies 
of being a pastor, and I'm sure if you were to talk to other people in our congregation that deal in counseling capacities like Jess, is we oftentimes get this wonderful privilege to speak truth into people's lives, but one of the reoccurring things that I've seen in, as I've given counsel to, to, to people through the years is how often people think they are alone. I mean, for the most part, when people approach me with their needs, the, the problems almost are always the same. I mean, you'd be surprised at how much I hear the same exact thing happening and playing out every single year. But yet, each and every single time, that person believes that they're somehow alone in that struggle and that that struggle is something that nobody else has experienced. And, And don't get me wrong, I don't want to diminish your story because it is true that your story is your story and it's unique to you. But the reality is is that each and every single one of us still has in some ways some common ground and some common struggle that others have experienced too. But the enemy wants you to think that you are alone. That nobody understands you. That nobody gets you. that, That nobody cares enough to be in your life. And ironically, what ends up happening in a situation like that is you end up pulling away more. You end up distancing yourself more. And you end up creating an environment where you're actually alone because you don't allow people to enter in. Isn't it amazing how that sometimes happens? That's a trick. That's a tactic of the enemy to tell you that lie and then ostracize you. I mean, what do you think is happening to Elijah right now? He's afraid for his life, even though just the day before, he was literally able to pray down fire from heaven and wipe out 450 false prophets with his own sword. And he goes from that to being afraid of a woman. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to diminish a woman's strength here, but you see the irony. And he goes and he's alone. Lie is is that you are alone. But the truth is is that you are not alone. You can be in the darkest depths of your life, both physically and mentally, but you are still not alone. Isaiah 41.10 says, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Verse 5 of uh, chapter 19 says, all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He, took, he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then laid down again. See, eventually, Elijah would make his way to, to Mount Horeb, which if you didn't know what that mountain was, that was the same mountain that Moses likely went up in order to receive the Ten Commandments. So he goes to this mountain that's also nicknamed the 
mountain of God. And there he speaks to the Lord and he, he complains and he tells him his lament and his struggle. And he says, I have been ze- very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. You see, he's feeling alone. And not only is he feeling alone, but he's struggling with this third lie that has led to his depression. And that is being overwhelmed by his circumstances. I like how the Lord replies to him. He says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. The Lord is about to pass by. And what is he doing there? He's he's literally giving Elijah this unique and powerful opportunity to experience the near presence of God. Now, this is, this is something that wasn't afforded to many. You see, if you didn't know this, one of the beautiful things that happened with Jesus' life, death, and more specifically, his resurrection, was that through that act, he was able to literally change the way things operated on this world. You see, in order for people to literally be in the presence of God, they would have to go to a physical location. Maybe that was at the tabernacle, or maybe that was in the temple of God. And and even there, you were kind of limited with how far you could go. There was this place that you can enter in and where the presence of God dwelled called the Holy of Holies. And if you were not righteous and you went into the Holy of holies, you would literally die. This became so much of a problem that they would have to tie a rope around the priest so the people that were already meant to be holy people, they would have to tie a rope around the priest and make sure that there was bells on the garment because if they stopped hearing the bells, they assumed that the priest had something in his life that caused him to die in that moment and they would have to pull the body out of the Holy of Holies. Now this isn't because God was mean or unjust or didn't love us and didn't want to be with us. No, that's exactly why Jesus came was because he was able to tear the veil which is why you see that happen in the gospel stories, literally tail the veil that separated the holy of holies, the presence of God from us. So one of the beautiful things about the resurrection is we now get to be in the near presence of God. But it wasn't like that back then. 
So when God says that he's going to pass by Elijah, this is both a terrifying experience because if Elijah has things going on wrong with him, who knows what's going to happen, but it's also a wonderful experience because he's about to experience for himself the near presence of God. You see, God was there all along, but, but to be in that kind of situation was different. Brothers and sisters, we take this for granted. We take for granted that the Holy Spirit literally dwells in each and every single one of us who believe. So in this moment, God passes by and it totally encourages Elijah and and God starts speaking to Elijah and starts speaking life into him and tells him about the future of Israel. The lie is is that we're overwhelmed by our circumstances, that we can't do it, that ultimately our circumstances are going to consume us. But the truth is, the big truth is, is that the Lord is God and He is with you. Amen? The Lord is God, and He is with you. The enemy's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but God's purpose is to give you a full life, an abundant life. And wherever you find yourself, you need to be able to speak these truths in, because trust me, there will be a day, and maybe that day is today, where the enemy is trying to whisper lies into your ears. And maybe you've even accepted those lies. And maybe you've told yourself those lies for year after year after year. And that lie you've accepted almost as a part of who you are. But God says something different. God is the one that offers us hope. He's the one that reminds us that He will be with us. And He's ultimately the one that directs our path. Let the Lord speak to you about who you are and whose you are. Amen? What's wonderful about this situation and what I think we need to pay close attention to is that this moment of depression in Elijah's life, it didn't come about in the younger years of his life, but it came about when? Some of the last stages of his life. So I think this should remind us of a few things. One of those things is is that we can run a really good race, and we can still mess up. And we need to remind ourselves that even if we do make a mistake, even if we feel like that mistake was a big one, that ultimately, even though that mistake could have been a big one, that God could still use us, that God still cares about us, that we don't need to to, to be perfect because He is perfect. And the other one is, is that We need to be humble enough to acknowledge our struggles. 
we have this culture of, I don't want to tell anybody anything personal in my life that I'm dealing with because I need to make this image of, of strength. Look, I'm not saying that every stranger you need to bump into, you've got to give a confession as if they were a Catholic priest. <laughs> but what I am saying is, is allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to share your testimony, to share the things that you want your brothers and sisters to pray for. Because one of the best ways to realize you are not alone is to let your church family love you embrace you, pray for you, meet your needs. You know, I'm really thankful this week that a few of you, the minute I said something about how my grandfather had passed away, were instantly jumping on how, how they could help. And I didn't have any real present needs that I could offer help for in, in this situation, but just the fact that that was a posture that somebody had is a blessing. And it reminded me that my church is my family, a part of my family. And I want to encourage you to be able to be vulnerable enough with other people so that you don't live in those lies, but instead you have live in those truths and allow others to speak good truths into your life. Amen? Amen. I'm going to go ahead and pray now, and we're going to transition after that into communion.